Welcome back to Awareness to Action, the philosophy podcast. Um, <laughs> setting the stage right off the bat. Aren't there you? it is. Um, we have a really exciting episode today. We're going to get a little bit more into theory, something we've all been musing upon over the last few months. Um, mostly Mario, but you know, um, I'll take credit. Uh, <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about this, a philosopher. He's still alive because we most of the time think of philosophers as dead. No, he's not. He died in 1994. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, well, okay. then he's a proper philosopher. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, Karl Popper and Mario, can you tell us a little bit about him and um, what are we in for for today? Well, I, I can tell you he's dead. All right. So uh, uh, now Karl Popper was a philosopher uh, mostly known for in the f field of the philosophy of science. And, uh, and, and that, folks, is our listeners tuning out right now. But uh, hang in there <laughs> with sound. us, folks. Hear that sound. <laughs> that clicking sound you hear. <laughs> but he actually really, I think, is probably the single most influential philosopher of the 20th century. Born in 1902, I think, died in 1994, like I mentioned. So he spanned the 20th century, uh, European, and uh, was uh, very affected by the rise of fascism first and communism as well. And it shaped the way he thought about things. Uh, he was most famous for the concept of falsification in science, which has set the tone for how science is done. You come up with a hypothesis and then you try to falsify it, prove it untrue, prove it wrong, rather than just seeking to confirm it. But he also extends that idea to pretty much everything. Okay, And I think it's one of the most important ideas in intellectual history. Pretty close, not quite as big, but pretty close to Darwin's idea of uh, evolution by random mutation and natural selection. So Mario, why should people continue listening? And what happens? What would they be missing if they don't? What would they be missing if they don't? Besides listening to your just the, just deep the pleasure voice of hearing and, our voices yeah, yeah well <laughs> especially yours in this case yeah. <laughs> to be very honest but yeah as i get older it gets deeper so um <laughs> so last time we talked about the awareness to action process and how it shapes the way we work with type talked about rewriting stories and this is really what Popper was talking about with this idea. And what we'd like to cover today is how this idea applies not just to working with types, although it's fundamental to that, but also in working with Enneagram theory. Okay, I think that's fundamentally important. Also, if we want to just skim along the surface of things, that's fine. Right. There's plenty of Enneagram stuff out there for skimming along the surface and finding simple solutions to things and just going on. But if we really, really want to do good work, we have to understand theory and its impact on practice. So what we're going to do today is go a little bit deeper into the, you know, the foundation of the awareness to action process, but also explore how it affects Enneagram theory in general. 
How about people who are just Enneagram enthusiasts who want to know more about the Enneagram? Would this be applied to them as well? Well, what does it mean to know more about the Enneagram, right? If you want additional descriptions of types, uh, you know, if you want us to talk about more traits of the four, this is probably not the episode you want to listen to, right? If you're interested in applying the Enneagram. I'll fit it in somehow. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it always does boost our listenership. So, so folks, now let, let me retract this. We will have more interesting tidbits about, you know, what it's like to be a four uh, in this episode. Um, but if you want to understand Enneagram theory, and if you want to understand some of the pitfalls of creation of theory, I think this episode will be helpful. Would it be helpful for people in their attempt to understand themselves better as well? How do I know? We haven't even started the episode. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I want people to listen to it. Yeah. Can, can I? Can I just go ahead? Can I insert here? Yes. I think. I think why people should continue listening <laughs> now that we're like seven minutes because in. there's a prize at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is. Theory can feel very high-minded, can feel very, what's the purpose? But uh, again, a cooking analogy. Again, just we're, we're teach, we want to make sure our listeners at least have the opportunity to understand how to cook. And once you understand how to make a dish taste good, how heat and how salt all work together to make something really delicious. We want to give you those tools. If you don't, if you want to just follow recipes, fine. But I, I think you're going to actually be impressed with yourself on how many different ways this can be applied. Everything from sweeping the kitchen to uh, to understanding the Enneagram in a more deeply, more adaptable way that you don't have to memorize a bunch of different facts from a bunch of different teachers in books. This is like the underneath stuff yeah. that you can actually integrate and push forward um, in your own unique way. Hashtag force. I like you, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're absolutely right. And so to extend your cooking analogy, Creek. Oh boy, um, this always goes well. <laughs> <laughs> Almost everyone at some point cooks something or prepares a meal. Even if it's just, there's nobody else home, so I got to make a peanut butter and jelly Mac sandwich. And cheese. Mac and cheese, right? So everybody is a cook. You can be a good cook or you can be a crappy cook. You know, if you want to eat better, learn some of the fundamentals of cooking. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to be talking about epistemology today, okay? And there go the rest of our listeners. <laughs> epistemology is simply the, the way in which we know what is true and what is not. All of us are epistemologists. All of us, even people who believe crazy stuff, are epistemologists. They're just we're, bad at it. They're just bad <laughs> at it. That's absolutely right. Okay? You, you are an epistemologist. You can be a good one or you can be a bad one. And just like the cook who never learns to cook is going to eat a lot of bad meals, the epistemologist who doesn't learn to epistemologize is, that is the going word? to... No, I just oh, made okay. it up. <laughs> but who does not learn the fundamentals of good thinking is going to think a lot of bad things. 
Yeah. I have one more thing to add here, and I think it's a rant that I could go off on, but I think us giving giving you this tool is trying to be the last guru, as as one of my favorite thinkers talks about, is so many people out there create this system that you have to constantly come back to them yeah. to understand. And what we're trying to do is be the last podcast, <laughs> the last guru <laughs> yeah. podcast. We're done after today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, Where it's like, here's the tools, you can do it now. And we don't need you to come back to us, yeah. which is kind of working against us on some <laughs> level. But like, it, it's, I think it's really important. We're not trying to create gurus out of ourselves. Yeah, but, but I, and I'll use another analogy. It's like parenting. Like mm, up to yeah. some, I don't know, I have a 17-year-old. And I honestly think that I did the teaching already. And now it's a different way of educating. It's a way in which I just talk with her and sure. we grow together. But it's not like I'm the one telling her what to think, what to do, or anything like that. So you can still come back to us, but we will not be, <laughs> be the guru or the person telling you things that you need to swallow. Mm -hmm. so we'll discuss. Yeah, um, there's a saying in Zen Buddhism that if you want to be enlightened, it's easy, right? Uh, just sit up straight and breathe. And in 20 years of hard work, you'll be enlightened. And this is the same thing. What we're talking about here are first principles. And that's how we always try to approach things. Or what are the fundamental first principles that the user can apply over and over again? And along the way, they'll start to realize, hey, wait a minute, I never thought about applying that first principle this way or how can I apply it in that way? And those are the conversations we'll have. Yeah. I remember early on when we started doing certification or, you know, training programs and people would attend, you know, a, a training program. And then at the end of it, they'd say, okay, what's next? And my, I, and I would just always be baffled by that because my, you know, my reaction was, well, what's next is you go practice this, right? I mean, go start applying this and learn it. And then, you know, you know, then maybe we'll talk about doing something else. But I, I dislike the idea of adding things just to add things. And I see people do that all the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy, you know, we got to come up with a new program to milk some more money out of our, uh, you know, mailing list. <laughs> so um, everyone take a deep breath. Um, and I... I think we have a really smart audience. I mean, if they've stuck with us this long, they've they have some faculty faculties to easily be able to keep up with what we're jumping into, and it's really not that complicated. We're I was going to say they're probably going to be really disappointed. It. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like it's <laughs> like when the, 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 the super of life. <laughs> yeah, it's like when the supercomputer said that you know the meaning of life is you know forty two, right? I mean, uh -huh, uh -huh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a hitchhiker's uh, reference uh, yes. solely for Lee Fields, who I'm sure is listening, but hey. uh, Lee would get that one. So yes. Anyway. Um, so Mario, take us in. What are we talking about? So very simple. Last time we talked about the awareness to action process and how we use those three steps to help people grow. We were focusing on emotional competencies last time. The awareness to action process is a reversal of the inner triangle as it's described usually in the Enneagram literature. The inner triangle is usually used to represent how we go to sleep to ourselves. The awareness to action process is you know, using it in reverse order, practice awareness, 
create authenticity, take action to wake up and to change and grow and improve. It's really a rephrasing, although it wasn't consciously at the time, of Karl Popper's fundamental insights about falsification. And what Popper was saying, and I'm going to try try to avoid the formula here. Uh, if I had a whiteboard, I could write out the formula. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it would make it any better, Mario. So try to explain it. Yeah. So so basically, what Popper was saying is that the way that the advancement of all knowledge works is number one to accept the fact that we can never know anything for sure. Okay. He was kind of a, a an extreme skeptic, like David Hume, my my other favorite philosopher. Meaning that we can we can feel confidence in probabilities, but we can't know anything for certain, right? If I drop this pencil, I'm pretty sure it's going to fall to the ground. In fact, I would bet my mortgage on that. But we never really know for sure. Okay, so you can't know anything for sure, meaning knowledge is always provisional. It's always in process. We can't find truth. We can get closer to truth. And that's an important distinction because when people think they found truth, they become dangerous, quite frankly. And that was another of Popper's concerns. And he, you know, used that, you know, he used the fascists and the communists, you know, of his time as examples of that. Right? He was very uh, leery of any big grand ideas, and I, I have always shared that with him. So anyway, the idea is that we can never really know anything for sure, but we can get close to the truth. And the way we do that is through identifying a problem, creating a trial solution or, a, or an explanation of that problem, but then trying to find errors in our explanation, trying to falsify the explanation. And the more errors we find in the explanation, the closer we get to what's true. But as Popper said, that just takes us to kind of a new level of challenges because we reveal new things as we go. And we talked about this with the awareness action process last time, right? So the eight works on, you know, being more authentic, rewriting their narrative about what it means to feel powerful. And instead of being a bully, they start to say, well, you know what? I can become more powerful by showing mercy to people, right? Not not killing them when they deserve it. Well, that's the first iteration, and it's a pretty good explanation. It's certainly better than the prior explanation. But as we go through life, we start to realize, okay, that's not enough now. And maybe it's not just mercy, but I got to start practicing grace too, and so forth. So it's this ongoing process of refinement of stories and explanations that takes us closer to the truth. And the moment we stop doing that, the moment we start to become comfortable with our explanations is when our ideas start to calcify. Okay? And when our ideas calcify, the world around us is changing. New problems are being proposed to us, but we can't address them because our explanations are static and we're relying on dogma. 
So understanding this is really, really important. What's the difference between the calcification of ideas and your, your gravity analogy? So the, the difference is, uh, you know, and just a subtle difference in that case is that I can say, oh, no, it will always fall. Or I can say, eh, it'll probably fall. But you know what? It might not. And now I can start thought experiments. And I can say, well, under what conditions might it not fall? I'd say I'm in space. Right? Say I'm in a, you know, an alternative universe, whatever. Right, But it opens me up to thinking about things in a broader way. Now, of course, we can't go questioning everything, right? I can't question, oh, if I drop this baby, you know, well, let's, <laughs> let's do an experiment, right? Uh, you know, I mean, in certain things in life, we start to start, we have to start acting as if we are certain. Mm -hmm. okay, it's, but in other things... When we start to bump up against problems, we start to run into friction, okay? I'm comfortable with this idea of the pen falling, but then something weird happens and I experience friction. Now, that's an, a, a pretty crazy idea. But if I think of one of my personality stories and I'm pretty comfortable with it, I start to feel friction when my story is calcified and I have to practice that. I'll, sh I'll share an example of this. I, on occasion get people who come to me who've been teaching the Enneagram for a while. And people will start to say to them, people will start to question their type, okay, their assessment of their own type. And then they start to question it. And so they ask me my thoughts, which is an experience I never like because it always goes exactly the same way. I have this thought that maybe they're not they're typed correctly either, I express to them why, always framing it as something very provisional. And nine out of 10 of those people come back to me after first embracing what I have to say. They come back to me saying, yeah, you know what? I think that uh, I'm the type I thought I was before. Right? Now, some people don't. Okay, Some people get it. Okay, But it's usually people who have been invested in this idea of themselves. And so what's the damage of that? Well, to me, it doesn't affect me at all, right? But they're living, you know, with this dissonance in their mind about their type. And they're losing credibility from people who know them and see what's really happening. To me, I also think that, and maybe it's just another way of explaining this, but when you work when you have this idea that you're getting closer to the truth, but it's not the truth that you're seeing compared to, you know, I know what I'm seeing, yeah. you stop looking. Yes. So these provisional hypotheses allow you to continue to pay attention. Whereas when you think it's the truth, you forget about it and you see it as a part of the picture and don't pay attention to the nuances, the changes, all the things that could be really relevant to how you have to address them. Great examples of that, right? Uh, you know, the work of Leon Festinger, who, um, st you know, came up with the idea of cognitive dissonance. It came from studying doomsday cults, right? These people who really, really believed that the earth was going to end on a certain date, kind of like the Corinthians going up onto the rooftops waiting for Jesus to come back. And 
when the date didn't, or when the world didn't end on that date, Festinger thought, okay, well, they're just going to pack up and go home and say, oh, I guess we were wrong. But they didn't. They actually doubled down because they're so invested in their belief that they said, oh, we just did the math wrong and it's actually going to happen next Wednesday, right? Or, you know, something like that. And we still see people doing this, right? When's JFK Jr. coming back from his watery grave, which is something people believe is going to, some people believe is going to happen, right? And they keep setting a date for it and he keep doesn't come, he keeps not coming back, mm. right? Well, you know, so by asking ourselves, well, maybe I'm wrong about this, it keeps us from doing a lot of silly things. So in light of this epistemological... Um, <laughs> wow. If nothing else, I'm learning a whole lot of new words here. <laughs> <laughs> a whole lot of new I mean, Mario's making up words. words. Why yeah, can't right. I? I mean... Um, <laughs> So in light of this, what can we apply in the Enneagram space? So you talked a little bit about like just type stories and that sort of thing. Can we, I guess, referring back to the last three episodes, and I mean, yeah. I'm sure we've mentioned it a few other times, but um, maybe like one example there and then just how do we how do we filter through all the different information that's coming at us in Enneagram space, but also just in our everyday life? Like, how do we use this? So th there are a few ways to think about this. A simple rule, and it sounds ridiculous, and it is sort of a uh, tautology, but um, better explanations are better than lesser explanations. Okay? So we, we think about it, what this process involves is continually coming up with better explanations about things. That's how science progresses, right? So Newton, for example, had this really great explanation for the laws of, of nature, the natural universe, okay? Newtonian physics. And for a long time, it was the idea. And everybody said, oh, this is it. And you had the logical positivists come along and say, you know, we can answer everything through the use of science. And then Einstein and others came along and said, time out here, there's something else going on. Okay, and they come up with the idea of quantum physics. Now, quantum physics is, you know, this other element of physics that is in disagreement with Newtonian physics, but so far we believe them both to be true. Okay, so we've got this problem, right? So again, it kind of expands our knowledge by being willing to look for better explanations. Now what scientists are looking for is how do we incorporate both quantum physics and Newtonian physics into some better explanation about how the universe works. Now, that applies to everything, okay? We take it back to cooking. What's a better way to cook this meal? Okay. What is a better way to play this song? What is a better way to make investment decisions, business decisions, etc.? At least to me, it makes more sense to ask the question, not what's a better way, but what's not working. And that is the error elimination part of it, right? The, the reason we ask, that's how we get to what is a better way. You're absolutely right. What is wrong here? What are the errors? What are the mistakes in this, okay? And that leads us to a better explanation. Yeah, and, and it's important, I think, to keep in mind what you've mentioned before about in order to see those errors, 
you need to be paying attention. Otherwise, yes. you will just justify the errors by something different to kind of the story you have about it. So you need to understand that all your ideas are provisional. And then when you see the, the error, you feel the friction, you're willing to reassess your stories. Absolutely. And this is why emotional intelligence is so important. Right? Because emotional intelligence is awareness of our emotional states and the ability to respond to them. What most people don't do is see their emotional states as pointing to something that needs to be fixed. Pointing to something that needs to be made better in some way. Instead, we see it as a threat and we usually double down on what we already believe. And there are lots of reasons for this. We go into why people believe the things they do, you know, in full episodes in the future. But, you know, for now, we'll just, you know, say that that's what people do. And to clarify, you're talking about like not pleasurable emotions. Correct. Or even even pleasurable ones yeah. cannot be taken fully advantage of. If I feel too good about something, maybe I should pay attention to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or even, hey, this made me feel really good. What can I learn from it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So all of our emotional states, they're, they're data that point us in the direction of something. Okay. So we have to be aware of something not working. And the way we do that is through self-awareness, emotional intelligence, being tuned in to what's happening with us. Okay, it's not all out there somewhere. It's, it's what's happening inside. And so then we use that to say, okay, something isn't working or something could be better. What is that thing? We check our assumptions. We check our stories. We work to eliminate the errors in those stories and we come up with a better explanation of things that then raises us to a new level of performance of whatever the activity is that we're talking about which increases our aggregate contentment. Yeah, to, to make it less abstract, I think that we can use some of the examples we have about the Enneagram theory that we use. You think aggregate contentment is abstract, Maria Jose? <laughs> <laughs> some people could think that way. When people say, how are you doing? I say, I feel aggregate <laughs> contentment. <laughs> Go ahead. Go uh, ahead. Yeah, so the the concept of the strategies is something that it's a refinement of the Enneagram theory that takes these into account. So why don't you share how you came up with that concept and why, look, I have my own opinion, but why is it better than just talking about other labels that are more descriptive? Yeah, so... Um you know, I never, I never set out in life to be an enneagram theorist. Okay, I, I never thought, boy, yeah. I, uh, I, I really want to create new and different and better enneagram theory, mommy. Um, so, um, <laughs> um, when I learned and was introduced to the enneagram, I thought, this is, this is freaking amazing, right? This is awesome. And I did a deep dive and I did some trainings and learned a lot of amazing things from some great teachers. And then all I wanted to do was go out and apply it with my clients. But then I started to notice problems. I started to notice that there were some 
things that needed refinement. Okay. For example, what does it mean to be a four? What does it mean to be a three? What does it mean to be a two? What is an operating definition? Okay. An operable operating definition, meaning what can I do with this? So I started wrestling with, well, what am I saying when I'm saying somebody's a one? Okay. And that led to a theory, okay, an explanation. Well, seems to start with some subjective need to feel a certain way or be a certain way. Okay? And then that shapes the way we think and it shapes the way we behave. So at the heart, from my view, my explanation of what's at the heart of these Enneagram types is this idea of an adaptive strategy that shapes how we interact with the world. Just calling an eight the challenger is, it's an explanation, but it's not a great explanation, okay? Because, yeah, it's, it's true. It's limited. It's, it's limited. limited. It's limited. Yeah. yeah, so I was today with a team that I work with, and I know that, or I think that one of the guys is an eight. And there was there were some things going on, and he was quiet all the time. He was not challenging people, and you would think that in that situation, an aide would challenge people. But he decided not to. Now, when you think of the aide as the challenger, you might expect the person to challenge things or people all the time, and they don't. Or that anybody ch who challenges must be yeah. an aide. Or that anybody who helps must be a two. And this is not to disrespect, you know, we're referring to, you know, the uh, Riso Hudson terminology. It's not to disrespect that because we know they go much deeper than that, yeah. right? But, you know, for me, what I was wrestling with is what is a clear, simple, operable explanation of what it meant to be a particular type. That doesn't need so much explanation. Exactly right. People get it, right? If I say a force striving to feel unique, yeah, I get that. It explains a lot. But it also doesn't limit it to something very specific, right? We're not saying that they're all artists, right? Or that they're all, you know, creators or something like that. Because as we know, many fours are not. But they are all striving to feel unique. Or distinct, yes. <laughs> Yeah, QED, yeah. right? So, Case in you know, point. Yeah, <laughs> I, exactly. <laughs> so, so what started happening for me is as my, look, the business world is different from the self-help world. In the self-help world, the psycho-spiritual world, you have a lot of people who want to believe. In the business world, you have a lot of people who want to show that the other person is full of crap. So whenever I- And I'm, that's not a personality detriment. It's just like, that's how you run a business. Absolutely. A because again- Falsification. That's, it's falsification, right. right? It's what any smart, epistemically sound person does, right? Oh, this is interesting. Let me try to disprove it, okay? Whenever I have somebody come to me with this really wild, grand idea, quantum physics explains, you know, the existence of non-local consciousness. Oh, that's interesting. 
Let me explore that. And then you find out, oh, no, it doesn't. The person's argument was crap. Or this experience proves life after death. Oh, that's interesting. Let me explore it. And then you find out where the person, you know, is wrong in certain areas. Okay. You know, I was doing a training yesterday with a group of 18-year-olds. And they were inquisitive and challenging as well about the theory. Yeah. They, were, they had no investment in the theory. Mm-hmm. They were just there mainly because their parents told them to. <laughs> but no, 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 they wanted yeah. to. But, you know, it's not just the business world. I think that when you're not invested, when you're not in love with the theory or with the model, it's yeah. so much easier to see more cl- clearly and be able to question things. Yeah. And children are great at that, especially teenagers, right? I mean, teenagers are out to make their mark on the world by pointing out how their parents are idiots, okay? how their teachers are idiots, etc. So this is the way of things. And what we're proposing here is how to get better at doing this really important thing. And, you know, the fact that, you know, business people are like this and and not just business people, but, you know, I always tell people the best book on critical thinking skills that I've ever read was published by the CIA. Why? Because it matters to them, right? The military practices this stuff. Why? Because it matters, right? Lives are on the line. And whenever the consequences are greatest, the more rigor is called for and the more falsification is called for. Now, when you go to a weekend new agey sort of feel-good workshop, it's a wonderful experience. But nobody's life's on the line. Nobody's livelihood is on the line. Or shouldn't be necessarily. Shouldn't be. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And that's fine. But you're going to get less rigor in those environments. So I'm out in the business world teaching this stuff. And whenever there was a flaw or a weakness in what I was proposing to people, it was brought to my attention. And so I had to kind of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what's happening here? When it comes to the instinctual biases, you know, I was sharing that, you know, what I had learned, self-preservation, social, sexual. I mean, there are these three instincts. And I had somebody who knew what he was talking about who said, yeah, it's a bunch of crap, okay? It's not how science, it's not how biology works. It can be exhausting sometimes to always be like, okay, what's wrong with this? And what's wrong with this? And it's, and what's, I don't know, what's a, a way to be better paced? Um, because you can also get caught up in finding everything that's wrong with everything and you never actually do anything because you're just, this is wrong and this is wrong. How do you end up making a decision? Or you just get so paralyzed with how everything is wrong in the world. (laughs) You're just in a state of stupor. Yeah, and I think that it's what we've said about friction and those alerts that we get when something just doesn't go the way we expected or it doesn't feel right. And then it's a good way to pay attention. It's like a red flag to pay attention to your stories. Not all the time. It would be just awful to be questioning everything all the time. 
Yeah. You have to set some sort of threshold, right? Yeah. And ask ourselves, like, you know, again, to use a business analogy, uh, most managers have a, a an authority threshold, right? I can make a decision up to this much amount of money. Um, and as you go higher in the organization, you know, okay, I can make it up to this much and I can make it up to this much. And when I get to a certain point, okay, I need board approval to spend that amount of money. And we have to set thresholds for ourselves on what matters, right? Is this a financial decision that I'm about to make? Okay, is it a $5 decision or is it a $1,000 decision? And we apply the appropriate rigor. If it's a health decision, okay, is this going to, you know, what kind of impact will this have? What are the potential consequences of this? And then how much rigor do I put into it? You know, if, if I'm standing in Starbucks and I hear somebody going on about QAnon or something, I'm not going to stop to argue with them. I couldn't care less what that person has to say. If one of my kids comes home to me and were to start talking about QAnon, well, that would be a bigger deal right? because I have an investment in my kids. I care about them, whereas I don't really care about the person in Starbucks to the extent of wanting to argue with them, right? So... Man, to be a fly on the wall when one of your kids comes back <laughs> touting some QAnon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I'm proactive in educating them. No, I mean, honestly, I, listen, yeah. I, you know, as the father of four boys, I have always asked myself, what is the most important responsibility I have? And people always assume, because I'm a quote-unquote Enneagram teacher, that I would teach them the Enneagram. I don't, but I do teach them critical thinking skills, right? Because that matters. Right? I think you would agree with that, Maria, is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm very explicit about teaching them that. They just don't always like it. It's like, okay, come on, can we just have a conversation without questioning all the arguments here <laughs> and seeing all the flaws <laughs> and the fallacies? And it's just, but, you yeah. know, that's the best thing I can give you and leave you <laughs> for your life. Mm -hmm. Not, not mm -hmm. the best, but love is important, but in terms of education. Right. Well, and in Fathoms right now, like we're, this, this season theme is uh, dynamics of personhood. And what we're doing is we're taking the different identities, different labels that we put on ourselves and drilling down into them deeper to complexifying them not only to deeply honor them and and all its nuances, but also to see how they're limited um, and how they sometimes work against us. And I think that's the thing. When, whenever I'm in a conversation where I disagree with someone, just complexifying it is not to prove them wrong, but rather to, like in some ways, honor how much thought they've put into their side. And it's like, well, let's complexify this together. Because there's, there's something here of truth that you're sensing. So let's just keep going. You use the word honor there. And I think it's important, right? I mean, I, I don't try to falsify an idea unless I respect the idea enough to pay attention to it or respect the person enough to take them seriously. Yeah. Right? So if I'm arguing with you, it's because I've taken you seriously enough to examine your idea okay if i'm just 
smiling blankly at you, that means I'm <laughs> really not listening to you know what you have to say because yeah. it's not yeah. that interesting to me. Okay, but but this takes us to the, the the point that I really wanted to make with this episode is that we have to apply this to Enneagram theory in general. There has always been this kind of movement. So back back in my day, I first learned in the Enneagram, <laughs> there were two big schools of thought, okay? There was the East Coast School and the West Coast School. And there were certain things that, you know, they were at loggerheads about. And it's like, no, it's this way. No, it's this way. And, you know, and so and there was a, an even bigger school of thought who thought that they were just talking talking nonsense. Exactly, exactly. The Naranjo right? school. Yeah, the Southern <laughs> school. Yes, absolutely, right? So um, you're, you're absolutely right. And so it was like, I don't, you know, I, I don't respect your view well enough to look for synergy or to have a conversation with you because I just think you're a bad person and not very smart. Then things started to change. You started to get cross-pollination of people who studied with different schools. And now it's really kind of hard to tell different schools of thought apart. There's almost like this generic Enneagram. And most people who are new to the Enneagram think that there is a the Enneagram. There has also always been this movement to create a consensus version of the Enneagram. Right. This goes back even to 1994, the first uh, conference. We need to come up with a standard Enneagram, like kind of the, the Council of Nicaea, right? Of this is These are the books that belong in the Bible, and these are the ones that don't sort of thing. I think that's dangerous. Okay? I think that creating a standard Enneagram and then saying this is the Enneagram without being willing to challenge ideas and question and eliminate errors and evolve the model as we learn more about human nature and about the world around us is a big mistake because otherwise it just creates this dogma. And dogmas are dangerous and dogmas die out. So if we want the Enneagram to be useful in the long term, we have to challenge it and we have to challenge our assumptions about it and we have to rigorously evolve theory okay not willy-nilly not just sort of all thought you know unthought out but rigorously go about challenging some of our assumptions i think that this applies to different scales because we have kind of the enneagram theory and what was the word of the thing that some people wanted to do a dogma no, no, a um, consensus symposium. A, yeah, a symposium to standardize. Yeah, yeah. Um, but which look, it's a legitimate initiative, I think, but it has its risks, as you were mentioning. Uh, but we could wait until that happened or not, and question our ideas in a smaller scale. The ideas we have about how fours behave. We keep using the fours so that people yeah. keep listening. We did want to get that into the episode. <laughs> yes. Hashtag four. Get all SEO. Um, or the ideas about the eight and not only base them on the four or the eight that I know, but on more eights or more authors or could just broaden 
broaden our understanding of the different things that the Enneagram entails. And that is, a, I think, a quest that could take forever. It's We will continue to expand our definitions of the different things Enneagram-related. It never ends. And, and again, I, I don't want to say that, you know, I'm making two cases here, which I think can both be true. Number one, we should be rigorous about our ideas of the Enneagram and call something out when we think it's wrong. Okay. Uh, for example, I, I remember talking to some people who had an Enneagram school and they had decided that there were actually 10 types instead of nine. And <laughs> so for me, that violates a fundamental definition that the Enneagram is a system of nine, not 10, not eight, right? Nine, okay? If you want to create 10, call it the decagram and do something else, okay? And more power to you. Okay? But if we're going to talk about the Enneagram, there are certain things that we need to accept. And we can also understand it just like, for example, if we're calling ourselves biologists, we have to recognize that in the past, biologists believed certain things that they don't believe anymore, right? That Darwin was right, even though he didn't know of Mendel's work, right? So he had the idea right. He didn't know the mechanism. That's where Mendel and his peas and genes came in along and said, you know, here's the, you know, was able to provide the mechanism without being familiar with Darwin's work. And then we have the modern synthesis of evolutionary biology, which brings together ideas that incorporate each other, right? That, that enhance each other to create something better. I'm all for challenging ideas and I'm all for also acknowledging that the history of ideas is valuable and important and informs what we're doing. I think the important thing to note here um, as we're landing the plane on this episode um, is, is collaboration doesn't always mean consensus. Right. But it's, it's about a focus on finding the next step towards truth. Yes, and disagreement is not always a bad thing. Right? Because again, if we go back to the idea, uh, we can never really know anything for sure. And all explanations are works in progress. It should give us the humility to say, yeah, I see it a little bit differently, but I still respect that person's ideas. Yes, folks, yeah. I said that. Mark it on your calendar. <laughs> well, and I think there's, there's a difference between I, I will much with much more ease, um, respect the person who maybe I disagree with their ideas, but they also show a willingness to change or to continue to be curious. And I can, I can live, I can live with more, in, in some ways, integrity when I feel like I can, I can promote a person who is continually learning, even if I disagree with some of their principles. I think, too, that we can acknowledge that different environments can shape the expression of our theory, right? If I was teaching this in a church, 
my language would be different. My priors would be different than teaching in the world that I do. So, you know, we have to take that into account as well. So there should be a healthy friction between theories, but we should not be insisting that there be only one theory. Maro, can you just sum up everything you just said into a sentence? That'd be great. Not really, but I I think that we're, (laughs) I've really come to the conclusion that doing these podcasts earlier in the day rather than later in the day is better because my voice just sounds so much better. Wow. That was the prize at the end of the podcast, people. Hope you were satisfied. Um, no, 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 no. Let, no, no go ahead, Maria. Yeah, so I think that Craig touched on it, like teaching you how to cook. I think that here we're sharing part of the mindset of this approach. And even the definitions are not as important as this is. Mm-hmm. We can change the way in which we describe the eight or the nine or the four (laughs) and we have over time i mean i've been working with you for how long like 13 years and a lot of things have changed but this need and desire to question the definitions and to try them and to falsify them to see where there are weaknesses in it remains and that's important not how we define things today. It's what works, what is closer to the truth, and hopefully people will like that, at least to me. It's like, how can we invite you to have that same desire to question things and not just swallow theory and, because somebody said it, believe it? Do you want to take ownership over what you believe? That's, that's, yeah. that's what we're offering. Yeah. Um, and I think anyone in their right mind wants to say yes. Um, maybe they're afraid to say yes, but I think there's it's a deep human desire for sure. So everyone, thank you. If you made it this far, uh, you're the best. You're our favorite. We love you. Uh, we are all going to be at the IEA Global Conference. Um, mm-hmm. Would love to meet you all, see you all, talk with you all. Yeah. So, yeah. for our seven or eight listeners, please come and introduce yeah. yourself uh, to <laughs> well, us. Uh, yes, yeah, we'll buy you all coffee. <laughs> Creek um, will buy you coffee. <laughs> I'll make you coffee. There you bring, go. I'm going to bring there coffee. Right. So, anyways, uh, thanks everyone. We will. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. 